This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. Okay, I am totally geeking out in this episode because I love talking about systemic change and how to go all the way upstream to create lasting change and culture shifts within organizations. And no one knows more about this than my friend Veronica Lafamina. Veronica is the founder and CEO of Lafamina and Company, an advisory firm supporting nonprofits and social impact businesses at the intersection of strategy, culture, communications, and change management. Veronica partners with organizations and their leaders to go beyond what looks good on paper, quote unquote, to focus on what works well in real life. She is a leader, strategist, facilitator, trusted advisor, and certified change management professional, which I didn't even know was a thing, but now I know, with nearly two decades of experience as a senior executive at national U.S. nonprofit organizations. Her work has been featured uh, by Inc. Magazine, The Today Show, NPR, CNN, Captera, and in news outlets nationwide. So she's a little bit famous too. Veronica blogs regularly about nonprofit leadership, strategy, change management, and culture at lafamina.co. And in this episode, we dive right into how to work with your team to create change that gets people excited about working with you to shift your culture, advance programs, and do more good in the world. If you love change management, you are going to love this conversation. We talk about the humility, grace, vulnerability, compassion, and the patience required to create lasting systemic change. Get yourself a cup of tea, sit back, maybe even get a pen and some paper to take some notes. Just create some space to absorb the wisdom that Veronica shares with us today. Veronica, welcome to The Hub. Veronica, welcome to the hub. I'm so glad to finally have a chance to spend some time with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Kimberly. I'm so happy to be here as well. Um, So many great conversations we've had over time, but to get to do it together here is really fantastic. Oh yeah, we have. We we spent quite a lot of time in Clubhouse together during COVID and uh, I always really enjoyed those sessions with you. You always bring such wisdom and calm you know in fact when I'm struggling with what to say and then I throw it over to you you just always seem to just be able to drop all these flowers it's just like yeah so thanks for being here yeah I'm so happy it's a it's a great experience I think there's some really important conversations that we need to be having you know in our sector and and in the world more broadly and so it's always exciting to get together with someone like you who's got such a great, you know, perspective too on, on us as humans and what that means for how we change and move forward. 
Well, thank you for your generosity there. And, and I mean, I've already shared your bio with folks, but I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into this work. You know, was there, what sparked your interest in the charitable sector? Um, happy to. So I, um, I always joke that service is in my DNA. Um, I came from a family where being involved in the community, finding ways to um, provide support and make it better um, or just how I was raised. So I'm, some of my earliest memories are going down to um, some of the charities that my grandfather was involved with and supporting either by, you know, serving meals or by helping um, in other ways around those organizations. Um, and growing up with, um, I was in the Girl Scouts for a long time. And that was, you know, a big part of, of shaping, you know, who I became. Um, but professionally, I started out as a consultant working out with working with all kinds of organizations. Um, but I kept feeling drawn to the nonprofit space to the mission driven space. Um, and so I, you know, eventually made that that leap into being an in-house executive at nonprofit organizations. My background is strategic communications, um, but I eventually moved into strategy roles, like looking across the organization, mm -hmm. uh, um, how we conceptualize our strategy, and then also what it takes to actually make that happen. So not just being satisfied with creating a great plan, but choosing to turn that plan into reality by the way that we implement, communicate, and train our folks. And so um, I have really, like at this point in my career and with the, the clients I work with, become so focused on what does it take for us as humans who work in the charitable sector or who work in um, purpose-driven organizations to successfully fulfill our mission and to do it in a way that's sustainable so that we're not just constantly sprinting to the next task on the task list, but really being committed to the, the work that's needed and having the stamina to make change uh, that not just works, that doesn't just work for right now, but that lasts in the long term. Mm -hmm. You know what I love about that? And one of the reasons I wanted to bring you onto the podcast was because you wrote that fabulous article, Seven Steps to Build Your Nonprofit's Capacity to Manage Change. And that really resonated with me because when I was working as a director of fundraising or executive director, and even as a consultant, when I think about the organizations that were able to effectively deliver double digit growth in their fundraising program, which is what everybody kind of wants to do, um, it takes time and really it takes often a shift in culture and mindset. So I think fundraisers, directors of fundraising are in, and I've said it before, in this wonderfully unique position to be able to influence change through the entire system of their organization. And um, I'm keen to talk to you about some of these steps that you wrote about in, in terms of helping organizations shift. But Maybe let's just start with where do you think the opportunities are for the most improvement, which is just another way of saying what sucks right now. <laughs> it's, um, it's a great question. It's a great question. So first, I like to think about it in um, 
in like the context of where are we spending our time and energy? Mm-hmm. So you and I both know a ton of like brilliant, amazing um, nonprofit leaders, consultants working in the nonprofit space. And when you're out there looking at the information that's available and what people are talking about, it's all downstream effects. Totally. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Right. It's, it's so and, who's throwing the babies in the river. Right. And, and that's, um, and it's understandable. It's so human to say, what is going to fix this small problem that is happening all the way at the end of this yeah. chain reaction? Yeah. But when we back that up, when we kind of keep pulling up and keep pulling up, what we recognize is if you're going to try to improve fundraising, for example, or your fundraising program, it's not just about tactics, it's about the strategy for fundraising. Yeah. But if you're going to improve that strategy, you actually need to improve both the strategy and the operational capacity as an organization, right? We all know leaders in the sector who just by like force of sheer will have achieved amazing things. Yeah. But that's not sustainable because right. I can't clone Kimberly and right. I can't clone like a brilliant founder or executive director. So I have to be able to get really good at making my success repeatable. And so when I think about that, like what can we change? What's not working is, is it is two big things, right? One is we treat the completion or announcement or implementation date of a project as the end when it's just the beginning, right? So when we announce that we're going to do a new change, we then quickly move on from it instead of having the follow through and stamina to make it stick, to make it last. Mm -hmm. The, The other thing is that we don't consider skills like change capacity, um, change management and just management of people in general as important as things like what's our specific development strategy? What's our specific communication strategy? We get really into our silos and tunnels and say, instead of saying, how can we prepare our people to be equipped to keep making great decisions over and over again and follow those through? And that kind of mindset enables us to understand how to grow both our leaders and our staff, but then also how to set them up for success, no matter what discipline they're working in. Um, And that is where I see so many organizations struggle, right? Like you might have a visionary development leader who's then so frustrated because they're not getting the kind of support or understanding or alignment with other areas of the organization that they would expect. And it's because we're not looking at that staff as a whole or our capacity to do this well Mm -hmm. as a whole. And like, if there's something we're all going to do in our careers, it's live through change. Mm -hmm. So being, having those skills really, really matters. I'm what comes to mind for me when you say that is all of the directors of fundraising who, and I've written about this in the past as well. You know, I thought that implementing change required a hammer to go in and break stuff yeah but I think what you're talking about is understanding where you're where everybody else is starting from and gently leading them along (laughs) will create more 
a, a shift in culture that's more conducive to systemic change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a phrase I, um, I used to use a lot in with, with certain clients when they were feeling really frustrated, right? Why aren't people doing this the way I want them to do it? Um, you know, people should just see this is the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, and this might sound a little like unusual for our sector, but I think it's helpful to, in letting go of our egos a little bit, which is, do you want to be right? Or do you want to win? Huh? When you want to be right, or do you want to win? Right. You know, so if you want to be right, it's got to be your way. You're coming in with that hammer. Can't they see this is the best way to do this? Why won't they get on board? But winning involves being able to shift the culture of your organization to work in a new way. And human beings want to trust you that the idea is right and also trust that you understand how to get them there. Yeah, that's that's called um, that's that's leading with humility. Right. And it, it makes me think about a mentor of mine colleague now friend and I serve on a board with her but but 12 years ago she was my boss and I was an executive director and uh I don't need to go into details of the structure of that organization but she taught me a lot about working with boards and at that time I was a new executive director and I would come out of the meetings so frustrated and I remember once she said I was crying at the end of the meeting and uh she just said, Kimberly, did you get what you want? Like all of the resolutions passed. The board said, but it's ex- it was exactly that. My ego yeah. struggled with the fact that nobody said, Kimberly, you're right and you're brilliant. <laughs> right? right? It's yeah. a big, it's a big deal. But when yeah. we can let go of it, yeah, and then see that we can drive the kind of success and change we're looking for, it really, it really matters, you know, and it's hard because especially I think especially in in nonprofits and charities in in the social good sector yeah so many of us, of us have chosen this work because it matters to us it matters to us that it's done well and it matters to us that we are acknowledged for doing it well and mm-hmm. it's not like we need all the backpacks but it is difficult work yeah we could, might have chosen easier paths for ourselves yes. But, yeah. but but because we spent the time and energy and probably didn't earn as much as our colleagues in other industries, it is our emotional investment that we are sometimes looking for a return on. And that isn't going to happen unless we allow ourselves to get that emotional return from seeing the results of our efforts through the way that we've changed the organization. Let's just take a moment to absorb that because what you've said is so important. It's the emotional return for the investment that we've made. And unless we're willing to see, what what did you say? The change? Right, unless we're willing to, to accept that return on our emotional investment as the change we see in the organization and the change we see in other people or the fact that our end goal has been achieved, even if it wasn't done the exact way right. we hoped it was, we are setting ourselves up right for that ongoing frustration, for that ongoing conflict, instead of using it as a learning moment to say, 
oh, here's what worked. So one example of that could be, um, let's talk about a legacy program um, where people leave gifts in their will. There's a really long tail on that work. So if you were a director of fundraising, uh, hypothetically, a director of fundraising in an organization 10 years ago, and that organization 10 years later has skyrocketing, robust, wonderful legacy program, the reward, the emotional reward should could should be wow look at how great they're doing and you just know it's a result of the work that you did 10 years earlier yeah no one in that organization is going to give you a call and say hey thank you so much for that you know they don't remember who you are they've all moved on right it's so true it's so true in our sector and um and like that is part of like what, when we talk about the stamina needed to see a change through legacy giving programs are a perfect example. Implementation of strategic plans, perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much work that goes up in the upfront. We spend all of our time and all of our energy getting the perfect plan and yeah. perfect. I'm using my air quotes for our, yeah. our listeners, right? <laughs> getting the perfect plan on paper. Yeah. But the magic right? The change, the energy is in the execution and the implementation of that plan. And that implementation takes people in the organization to change the way they work, to be in line with this Mm -hmm. instead of doing what they've always done. You know, like we hear a lot of leaders, I hear a lot of leaders get frustrated. Well, people just want to do what they've always done, or, you know, they're complaining that this isn't how we've always done it. And that's a valid concern. Right. It's valid to feel frustrated that your team isn't seeing the same big, beautiful vision that you are. Mm-hmm. But it is also a clue mm-hmm. that tells us as leaders that we have work to do to help these team members move to a new way of working. And when we can understand, you know, basic principles of change management. It really goes so far in helping us get clear on where people might be stuck and how we can move them forward. Um, But without that, right, without that commitment and reinforcement of what it takes to make the change, what we've built is a nice plan Mm -hmm. that sits on a shelf or a nice plan that we stop investing in after year one. And that's a huge problem. It's a big problem. It's, it happens all across the sector. It happens in business as well. And, and that's what I loved about the article that you wrote is you used, is it Prosky? Prosky? Prosky, yeah. Prosky's ADCAR model. And I loved it because it's very similar to one that I'm familiar with by John Cotter. And he talks about the eight steps to influencing change. Mm -hmm. look at this ADCAR model and you're speaking right now to the very first step, which is awareness. Yeah. So, so I, um, I am a practitioner, right? I'm somebody who I like to roll up my sleeves and get my hands on things. And I, part of what I think my kind of expertise comes from is I've succeeded and I've failed and I've learned from both those experiences. Um, but, uh, 
you know, a few years ago, I went through the process of becoming a pro-sci certified change management practitioner because I've been doing that's a thing. I didn't know that was a, that's a thing. It is. Yeah. And it's, I, I highly recommend it. So for me, that was an exercise in taking everything I'd learned kind of in a scrappy way in the course of my career and saying, okay, well, like talk to me about the mm-hmm. methodology, like really geeking out, right. Mm-hmm. On change management. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, it is, there's so much good, right. About that program, but realistically speaking, a lot of smaller organizations may not have the capacity for like a full scale change management effort that you would expect to see at large, like multinational companies. Yeah. Um, but what I love, what I love most is their ad car model, which is how individuals move through change. And you're right that it's similar to Cotter. It's similar to these other um, frameworks that are out there. But I do feel what, what I love about ad cars, I think it's pretty simple to like remember and follow. So stage one is creating awareness about why the change is needed. Mm-hmm. So when we, when you think sometimes about like, let's say you're an organization and you're implementing a new CRM or you have a new um, program that you're launching, right? It's a pretty big deal. Folks have been thinking about this and talking about this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody shares the same level of understanding about why that change is needed. And so first, yeah, especially because that change is going to make that you're going to add a learning curve and that's going to make everybody's hard job harder. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so in some cases, and, and this is true, even with good change, right. Even with change that staff have been clamoring for, we still have to get everyone on the same page about the awareness of the need for change. So that's step one and really important. Mm-hmm. Next is desire. And that's creating desire to participate in the change. Right. So even if you kind of get why it's needed, you may not be that excited (laughs) about doing it because it is going to change your job. And there are lots of different techniques we can use to create desire. But it's one of the biggest hang ups we see in change environments. And it's something that too often leaders gloss over. Right. You'll hear them say things like, well, people just need to get on board or why aren't people understanding even really empathetic leaders. Right. Who because they've heard all the why this is a great idea and they know all the business reasons for why we should do it, they may forget to put themselves back in the shoes of a staff member who's heard nothing about this. Okay, let's take a second because that's leadership style, right? And there's there's this old school thought of leadership is about leading, like dragging people along with you and being at the front and making the hard decisions. But this is this, what you're speaking about is leading in a way that this idea of, okay, yes, help them understand why change is necessary, but then get them to want to do it with you is a completely different way of thinking. Yeah. Right. And it's a lot, it's yeah. a lot of influence work, right? And and there are leaders who may be very inspirational, right? Who are at the top of the organization and people love what they're saying, but that creation of desire needs to come from direct supervisors too, yeah. right? Because that supervisor is the right messenger for how is this going to change my job? What yeah. does this mean for our department? Like, it's great to hear from the executive director yeah. about like what this means for the organization, or if it's, you know, a new CRM, the chief technology officer or whoever's running that. But if I don't know what 
you know, if I don't know what it's going to do for my job, I'm going to be nervous. That's a normal human reaction. (laughs) And what comes to mind for me is middle management rolling their eyes and going, I don't know, corporate is what corporate wants to do. The board told us and then rolling your eyes that undermines the whole process, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's why one of the things that I talk about in the article and one of the biggest areas for improvement is better internal communications Mm -hmm. approaches in, in organizations. So managers are going to feel that way if they're hearing about it at the same time as everyone else. And if you haven't spent the time to talk to them about it and treat them like the leaders you need them to be. And there are lots of, you know, great ways of going about doing that. But when you ignore the -hmm. fact that both for internal change and external facing change, your staff and especially those middle managers are your most critical advocates, then you really are doing yourself a disservice as a leader to actually to winning, right? To getting the change all the way through. Treat them like the leaders you need them to be. Yeah. That's so key. Tell me about the K. Yeah. So, so K is next and that's knowledge. So um, great. We're on board for the change, really excited about it, but I need to know what I'm supposed to do or how it works in this new change. So again, with a new technology, that might be understanding how I'm supposed to use this in my job, right? Like getting the right um, training in place so that I can really learn what I'm supposed to do. Um, it could also be knowledge about, you know, how a process is changing or is there someone new I'm supposed to work with to make all these pieces fit together. Um, but, you know, that's where kind of good communication, good training play a critical role in saying, here are our expectations of you, right? Here are the new expectations and here's how we're going to support you in being able to meet those expectations. Mm-hmm. Um but what's really critical is the stuff that comes next, which is A, which is A that stands for ability. Um, so just because you know how to do something doesn't mean you actually can fulfill it or like faithfully implement it over and over again. I like to say with this one, um, this is where we practice, right? Like as kids, we fully accept that we need to practice new skills and new ways of working all the time. So whether we're learning something new at school, whether we're learning to ride a bike, like we all know that that takes practice. But as grownups, we like rarely give ourselves the grace to practice anything. We just expect ourselves to be really good at it without ever having tried it before. Mm-hmm. And so in organizations, like we have to give our staff the ability to practice and to really say, okay, I don't just know what I'm supposed to do, but I can do it over and over again. And in that ability phase is also where we learn, like, is there a problem? Mm -hmm. Is something like not working with the technology? Can we get great feedback from our staff? Or is something, you know, we're trying, but it's just not meeting where we thought it was supposed to be. Like that is a great opportunity for us to really hone not just what our expectations are, but how we deliver on them over and over again. There's a real vulnerability there, isn't there, with a team? I mean, you say give yourself the grace. It's hard when you're an adult to try new things and to admit that there's something you don't know or that you're struggling with. And I can imagine this might be a spot where a lot of turnover takes place. You know, it really can be. I um, have been in roles in organizations where 
you know, folks who'd been with the organization for a really long time and had been there through so many different changes and so many new processes were vulnerable enough to reach out to me and say, I really don't understand this. And, and it might be something really basic, but they had just hit their limit of ability to learn and, and absorb it on their own. And they just needed a little help to practice with someone else and to do that. But you're right. Like as adults, we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. Right. We want to look capable. We And not just look, we want to be capable, right? Yeah. So it prevents us from trying new things because we're not sure we have the skill. We not, we're not sure we have the, the talent. Um, and I would say that turnover, I think, in this process happens because organizations think that knowledge is enough. Mm-hmm. But we told them how to do it. Mm-hmm. Or we created this great training. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really create that space to practice and to learn in a hands-on way. And so after the training, they're like, well, it should just be working. Right. But that is not how it works. You have to practice. <laughs> well, shameless plug here, but this might be the moment they want to consider a coach for their team, frankly. Yeah. Just to have, you've got the professional development, you've got the skills training, but there's the ongoing success of the team and that an investment at that point might make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, um, there's ability in the specific change, but the more we, the more we practice and like prioritize practice, we get really good at practicing other stuff too. So this all compounds so that it's not just like, well, we did this great change management with the new CRM, but now we've got to start all the way from scratch with an, the next project. And that's not true because we've already gone through the behavior, spent the time doing it. And so we get better and better yeah. at each of these steps. And, and the final one, R, is reinforcement, right? And that is another area where I think organizations can be thinking about how they are incentivizing or disincentivizing their teams with keeping the change going. So reinforcement means this is the way we work now, right? And so when we look at it that way, we have to say, okay, well, are the senior executives working this way? Mm -hmm. Are we checking in on a regular basis that people are continuing to work in the way that we've asked them to work? Mm -hmm. Are we including it in our onboarding materials and the other ways that we train new staff? Has it become our way of working? Mm-hmm. When I work with clients, I always talk about what is your organization's way of doing this? Every organization is going to be a little bit different, but people who work here need to know this organization's way. And without that reinforcement, right, when there's no accountability or we, we just assume it's handled, we revert back to the way we were doing it that, before. The change it. doesn't stick. And that, that, what comes to mind for me there is work an executive director working with a board of directors. So you're working with a governing board who thinks about other stuff every couple and every couple of months they come in and they check into the boardroom. Um, They don't live and breathe these changes every day. So it really is up to the executive director to say, 
we remember when we had a discussion about this in our strategic plan, we decided on A, which led to B, and now we're at D, and this is why we're at D, and you decided to do that. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. And and again, you know, that's where that internal communications infrastructure is really important because we're also talking about how are you messaging to the board instead of just taking a bunch of new requests and expecting your team to make sense of them, right? It, that never ends well. It's it's mm-hmm. always it leads to turnover, it leads to frustration. Um, so being able to message up to the board is really important. Um, the other thing that I've seen in some of my work lately, so I've been working with some boards on helping them understand change management, is because this is not something that we talk about a lot not just in the nonprofit sector, but in in for-profit industry also, lots of our board members too don't really understand the steps that it takes to change. And so because this is how change works on a personal level, right? On an individual level, it can be beneficial for them both in their personal lives and their professional lives, but as leaders of these organizations to get that it's not just here's a new project, here's a new project, here's a new project. And that's how we're going to be successful in our mission. It's that we really, when we want to shift systems and shift society, we have to have the stamina to go through all of these stages. Mm -hmm. The more that we commit to that, the better we get at helping that be true for all of the big initiatives we put forth. But if we're getting so excited about the ideating, Mm -hmm that we forget that ideas don't equal implementation. (laughs) Like we have to actually put the work in to to make it a reality. Um, We're setting boards up, you know, to be in a bad position. We're setting executive directors and their staff up to be in a bad position. And we all wanna be working together to make the world a better place. So how can we remove some of those barriers by encouraging people to understand that this is how we work as humans? I am. I am glad that listeners had an opportunity to hear all of that. <laughs> I stopped listening. Do you know why? I stopped listening because when you mentioned this model can be used to help in all aspects of our lives, I thought about the time when I tried to get my teenagers to clean the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And there, was, there was an important change that needed to happen there. And I even... I did the awareness part by printing up reasons to have a clean bathroom on, I put that on the mirror, you know, health and disease and wellness and all of that, but I didn't really ever get them to want to make the change. Even when I took the door off the bathroom. So (laughs) I wish I could rewind and go back and go, okay, if I was to take this ad car model and apply it to that domestic problem, how would I have done things differently? And I know that's super simplistic, but it would work, right? It does. That's the thing. And it's not simplistic because that's, that's what we're getting at, right? I think we sometimes um, let the complexity of the challenges that we're dealing with overshadow some of like the the basics and the building blocks like this, which is if you can get your teenagers to successfully clean a bathroom because you're implementing these change steps, you certainly can do that on a um, 
on an organizational level too. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I could geek out on this stuff with you all day long. Um, certainly wish, no, what you, you spoke earlier about, you know, you, you learned this stuff just through sheer grit and determination earlier in your career. And then you geeked out over that, that this was actually a thing and a certification you could get, which makes Mm -hmm. it all make much more sense. Um, The last question I want to ask you, Veronica, is if this conversation were to end right now, what would be left unsaid? Oh, that's such a good one. Mm. Welcome to season three. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that I, I think that the the thing that folks may not you know have heard yet and what we're talking about, even though it's been there in seeds, is investing in yourself personally and in your team's ability to lead and manage change will impact everything mm. you do will increase your chance of success will increase your ability to understand the humans you live and work with you know the people who you serve as an organization and the people who power it um and this life skill is just so universally applicable that i hope this inspires you to really get into it more and to really understand that some of the problems that you've been dealing with and the challenges you're coming up against, it's not in the downstream. It's not in those tactics. Like, yes, we want more donors and we want them to, to donate more and we want them to become monthlies, whatever, but this helps you understand the human behavior changes needed too to make that possible. So when you can get these, you know, upstream factors, um, solid in your mind and then practice them and really put them in into the way that you work you can move mountains you can build the movements that you're looking to build you can really shape systems and society in the way that you're looking to do without banging your head against the wall quite as much as you may be doing right now oh that it's so true it's so true and and then maybe we wouldn't have the staff turnover problems that we have because the cultures would be so much healthier in our sector. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, um, when we expect people to change, but don't give them much information about why or how or what it looks like in the end when we do, mm-hmm. um, we're inviting a lot of uncertain uncertainty and insecurity Um, and also, you know, all change involves loss, Mm. all of it, even great change, even change that feel, you know, a kid's going off to college, you've had a really successful, you know, program that's now morphing into something new. It all involves loss. And when we forget that we don't leave the space needed to grieve or to honor, that loss or the legacy that came before so that we can move into the future. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge sticking point that I see with organizations. And especially when new leaders come in, we got to change this. We got to change that. Here's the hammer, right? Here's the new way of working. Um, But when we don't create space to honor that loss and grieve, 
-hmm. we are already starting with a deficit for getting this change successfully through all these steps. Um, And so I think that's the other important thing I would leave folks with is just because you think something is awesome doesn't mean someone else isn't grieving a different, that they're having to move on to a different way. That is such a great point. Such a great point. If we're, we're recording this at the end of summer and in Canada, a lot of kids are going off to university. And I was talking with my sister-in-law actually about how exciting it is for her oldest to be going to university and moving out of the house. But that is a time of also great pain and sadness for a mom, right? So these two things can happen at once and leaders and managers need to understand the same applies to their teams. That's a wonderfully empathetic and compassionate lens to look at this work with. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for, it's so nice to be in conversation with you again. I missed it. So I know this is so great. It was it's <laughs> wonderful to see you and to, you know, be, be together again. Um, these are important topics, mm-hmm. right? And the upstream, the more we can talk about some of these upstream factors, right? The better, mm-hmm. the better we become as people, the better we become as leaders, the better we become, you know, serving folks in the way that we want to in the nonprofit sector and beyond. And we'll be more resilient as people and organizations during times of disruption, like right now. And congratulations, you and your croaky COVID throat didn't cough once. <laughs> you know, thank you. Thank you. It's, it feels like an accomplishment. <laughs> yes, it was. Well done. Thanks so much, Veronica. Thanks, Kim. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us in conversation. It was just such a treat for me. Folks, if you like this episode, please do share it with others who might like to join our community. Let's keep coming together to create community through candid conversation. And of course, always, if you'd like to chat with me about uh, coaching or this podcast or my puppies, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to hear from you. So um, until then, I'll see you next time.